Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter episode 1.12 of the Syrian Civil War series, where we're going to actually get into... The Syrian Civil War, I think. I think we've done the background work, Ray. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, we've covered it. Let's jump into it. <laughs> okay, then. So oh, the no, end- I'm, sorry. I'm thinking. I'm thinking and yeah. looking and talking. No, and I can, no, I just thought it was I interesting. Uh, I can't do... I can't, did you hear the wheels turning? Yeah, I did, no. yeah. So, so back in... Back in 2006, Roebuck writes this thing. Look, this is how we weaken them. And then once we weaken them, let's get ready to take them down. Hell, I don't know. So we've got the plan. Do they put it into place? Or is it just some guy writing in his office late at night? He's got nothing else to do and files it away and no one cares. Yeah, well, we don't really know exactly what happened, but it it, it does seem like they put it into place, um, as we'll we'll cover. Um Parts of it, if not all of it. We, we don't really know if they deliberately were involved in stirring up tensions inside of Syria or if that right. just happened organically. Certainly, though, when the war broke out, the U.S. got involved, and we'll, we'll cover that as we move ahead. But the yeah. point that we were making but at the end of... Have... After you. I'm sorry, but just have to, again, just uh, want to make the point that the uh, United States, I think it was the uh, United States Intelligence intelligence agencies and the Israeli intelligence agency said it would really be bad for us if Bashar is taken out because there would be more extremists uh, who would probably take over. And then here's this guy in 2006 writing a memo about here's how we we erode his power base. Here's how we make him weak. And then we have to be ready once he's weak to take him out. So you got the left hand ignoring the right hand, even though it's got some very good points. It just seems like madness to me. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. And as we'll see in this in in this episode, like it's not like everyone in all of these places agreed either. There were people in the U.S. administration and in Israel saying, "Yes, let's take him out." Others saying, "No, let's not take him out." You know, there's 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 always debate and discussion that goes on there. But um, uh, at the end of the day, <clears throat> the powers that be make a decision and head in a particular direction where they think their interests are best served. But the thing I wanted, the point I wanted to remind people about this Roebuck issue. When Roebuck, the charge the affair in Damascus, wrote that memo talking about how they could take out Syria, he was working for the Bush administration, but as I said, he's a career diplomat. So it's not a Republican versus Democrat issue. This is just business as usual mm. for the United States. It may get accentuated a little bit at different times, depending on whether you have a Republican or a Democrat administration, but uh, it's pretty much always going on at some sort of level. Um, <clears throat> now, as I said it last time too, there's no evidence that anyone in the US government or, or foreign policy apparatus found Roebuck's cable controversial, didn't cause any scandal, um, didn't hurt yeah. his career. In fact, he ended up getting promoted. So it's fair to say that 
the the U.S. foreign policy apparatus believed that promoting sectarianism in Syria was probably a good good idea because that was essentially what his cable was about. Let's promote tension. Let's make the let's destroy their economy. Let's make sectarian um, antagonism uh, worse than it already is because that will foster U.S. interests in destabilizing the Syrian government. Or at the very least, if he's not if he's not um, punished, if he is promoted, then maybe they just saw it at the very least that he was doing his job. So, yeah, so we use it, we don't use it. But the point is, we're not upset with him for doing it, because this is what we expect of our people who go out and learn the details of other countries, how to weaken them if we need that to happen. Yeah, it could be the case. So um, in 2014, when the the sectarian nature of the civil war in Syria became obvious, uh, the United States government positioned it as an unfortunate development. Oh, it's it's terrible. It's become a you know we really we really are saddened to see that it's become a sectarian war, when in fact their uh, head of the embassy is was was sort of planning plotting how they could make yeah. that happen years and years before. So at the very least, it's slightly disingenuous. Even if they didn't directly get involved in increasing sectarian tensions, they certainly thought it was a good idea. How, how do you say with a straight face, um, can't they all just get along? <laughs> but I guess that's not the case. <laughs> I got something for that. Hold on. Well, you could, you could say it this way. Another song that uh, Bashar wrote, went back in time, gave to Phil Collins. Um, okay. Yeah. Now that it's hour three, I'm going to think of all the different Phil, Phil Collins songs I can reference just to see how fast you can pick up on it and play it. <laughs> <laughs> no one's paid it. I feel like we're doing a three-hour live radio show, and no one's listening by hour three, so we can fucking do what we want. Uh, true. Oh um. <laughs> So it turns out the U.S. did spend millions uh, in Syria, but we'll get to that later. Now, <clears throat> one of the vulnerabilities that Roebuck uh, highlighted in his cable that I didn't talk about in the last episode was that the U.S. should try to exploit the enormous irritation that the Assad government had with the former Syrian vice president, Abdul Halim Kadam who was the leader of the, still is, to the best of my knowledge, leader of the opposition in exile National Salvation Front, the NSF. So he was he was the vice president of Syria for two decades? He was. How, okay, was. How fucking old is this guy? He is 84 years old, right, currently. <laughs> what? I'm sorry, but if I was Bashar, I wouldn't be worried about him, but that's just me. He's yeah. probably going to die any day now. Well, the thing is, he knows where all the skeletons are. 
<laughs> ah, uh-huh. good point. Yeah. Now, Kadam is currently living in France. He's 84 years old. Um, and in fact, that's exactly what Roebuck wrote about him. He wrote, Kadam knows where the regime's skeletons are hidden, which provokes enormous irritation from Bashar, vastly disproportionate to any support Kadam has within Syria. Bashar Assad personally and his regime in general follow every news item involving Kadam with tremendous emotional interest. The regime reacts with self-defeating anger whenever another Arab country hosts Kadam or allows him to make a public statement through any of its media outlets. He goes on to propose we should continue to encourage the Saudis and others to allow Kadam access to their media outlets providing him with venues for airing the Sarg's dirty laundry, Sarg being the Syrian revolutionary government. We should anticipate an overreaction by the regime that will add to its isolation and alienation from its Arab neighbours. Now, note here that the goal of encouraging the Saudis and other countries to allow Qaddam access to their media outlets is not to promote democracy and human rights in Syria, (laughs) but to provoke the Syrian government to do things that would add to its isolation from its Arab neighbours. Gotcha. So, so, So Bashar will get upset at this old man and possibly the host nation overreact, thereby further weakening his position in the area because he's seen as an unstable element. Exactly. That's pretty smart. Um, And again, this kind of manipulation of media coverage is something that America's enemies have long accused it of and that America has obviously long denied. But we can see from this diplomatic cable that this is absolutely what goes on. Now, the, the the reason this is important is it, it just teaches us that when we see shit going on in the media, we have to question, well, what's really going on? You always have to think, well, what's really right. going on here? Whose interests are being served by this person appearing on television or this story appearing in the newspaper? You always have to ask, who stands to benefit from this? As our old friend Dickero said, qui bono? Not the lead singer of U2, the other... They're- well, I just wanted to um, to bring up something. So there, I got a uh, an interview for a Middle Eastern newspaper interviewed uh, this eighty four year old gentleman living in France, and uh, he was making a statement um, in Saudi Arabia, and he said uh, Syria never had extremists, nor are the Syrian people extremists in nature, but their sense of defeat and the feeling of being abandoned by the world have prompted many Syrians to escape to extremism. So the point he was making is when we do eventually get to the uh, to the civil war, uh, he's basically saying, look, this is not us. This is not what we do. There's a certain sense of very strong nationalism in Syria and that it took outside forces that we're going to get into to, to come in and to pollute the entire process that made the, the civil war what it is um, today. And this was this idea was backed up by Ross Burns, the former Australian ambassador to Syria. Uh, he was also ambassador to a couple of other countries in uh, the Middle East. And he lived in Syria for three and a half years, obviously before the Civil War. And he said, you know, I'd walk down the, sh- the streets and I'm talking to people and they don't wear their religion on their sleeve. Alawite, Sunni, uh, Shia, it doesn't matter. You know, whatever their religion is, I'm sure it 
it has uh, it dominates their life when they're in, probably in the home with their family, maybe in around dinner, but whatever. But these people don't wear it on their sleeve and they don't push it in each other's face. He was saying that they do really do have the strong sense of being Syrian. And so when the Civil War started, he was not surprised that there wasn't a lot, a lot of religious uh, issues involved. But when outside forces come along and muddy the waters and make it more extreme, that's when the entire the wheels start to come off the the entire thing. So these two gentlemen uh, saw Syria in the in the very similar light, and that these people are very proud of their country. It's just unfortunate that it has dictators, that it has uh, very powerful people on the outside who want to influence it and use it as a proxy war, and that's exactly what's going to happen once uh, once the uh, internal struggle starts. Mm. Kadam uh, is on record as saying that should Syria's Iranian lifeline be cut, then Hezbollah won't be able to stand on its feet. Hezbollah, without the mm. Syrian regime, is worth nothing. So there's another reason why the US has got an interest in regime change. They can take out Syria, they can take out Hezbollah. Pretty good. Uh, now, back in 2007, Seymour Hirsch, mentioned him a number of times over the course of the show, Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist who exposed the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Sorry, Bob Sullivan. Um, and the Abu Ghraib scandal, which we'll get to uh, soon, claimed that uh, – he wrote a piece in The New Yorker in 2007 where he claimed that the U.S., has also taken part in clandestine operations aimed at Iran and its ally, ally Syria. <coughs> Excuse me. A byproduct of these activities has been the bolstering of Sunni extremist groups that espouse a militant vision of Islam and are hostile to America and sympathetic to Al Qaeda. He said that his U.S. government sources had indicated to him that the Saudi government, with Washington's approval, would provide funds and logistical aid to weaken the government of Bashar Assad of Syria. The Israelis believe that putting such pressure on the Assad government will make it more conciliatory and open to negotiations. Syria is a major conduit of arms to Hezbollah. A former high-ranking CIA officer told Hirsch... The Americans have provided both political and financial support to Qaddam. The Saudis are taking the lead with financial support, but there is American involvement. So, so again, again, yeah. Again, geez. no, just, just that we have two different sources saying it could get much worse if this guy's not in charge, but let's bring him down anyway and see what happens. Well, we, we you know, at least they were involved in uh, clandestine right. operations uh, involved in overthrowing the government. And then, of course, there's Wesley Clark. So, yeah. You're not going to tear down, a, tear down a hero, are you? No, I'm not going to tear him down. No, I think he is a hero um, because <laughs> he's part of the military-industrial establishment that has actually spoken out. <clears throat> I don't know how you feel about him or Americans feel about him, but in my mind, he is a hero. So General Wesley Clark, retired general of the United States Army, spent 34 years in the Army, received lots of decorations, several honorary knighthoods, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He was the Supreme Allied Commander um, Europe of NATO from 1997 to 2000. 
a presidential mm. candidate in the 2004 election. But he stated in 2007 that he was told as far back as 1991 and again after 9-11 that the US was pursuing regime change in Syria. Here is a clip of him giving a speech. What happened in 9-11 is we didn't have a strategy, we didn't have bipartisan agreement, we didn't have American understanding of it, and we had instead a policy coup in this country, a coup, a policy coup. Some hard-nosed people took over the direction of American policy, and they never bothered to inform the rest of us. I went through the Pentagon 10 days after 9-11. I couldn't stay away from Mother Army. I went back there to see Don Rumsfeld. I'd worked for him as a White House fellow in the 1970s. All this is in the book. And, um, and I said, am I doing okay on CNN? He said, yeah, 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 fine. He said, uh, I'm thinking about it. He says, I read your book. And uh, he said, uh, this is a book that talks about the Kosovo campaign. And he said, I just want to tell you, he said, nobody's going to tell us where or when we can bomb. Nobody. He said, I'm thinking of calling this a floating coalition. What do you think about that? I said, well, sir, uh, thanks for reading my book. And, uh, well, uh, he said, thanks. That's all the time I've got. Really? And um, I went downstairs. I was leaving the Pentagon, and an officer from the Joint Staff called me into his office and said, I I want you to know, he said, sir, we're going to attack Iraq. And I said, why? He said, we don't know. He said, uh, I said, well, did they tie Saddam to 9-11? He said, uh, no. He said, but um, I guess it's, they don't know what to do about terrorism. And so uh, the, it, they think, but they can attack states and they want to look strong. And so I guess they think if they take down a state, it will intimidate the terrorists. And, you know, it's like that old saying he said, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem has to be a nail. Well, I walked out of there pretty upset, and then um, we attacked Afghanistan. I was pretty happy about that. We should have. And then I came back to the Pentagon about six weeks later. I saw the same officer. I said, why, uh, why haven't we attacked Iraq? We still going to attack Iraq? He said, oh, sir. He says, it's worse than that. He said, um, he pulled up a piece of paper off his desk. He said, I just got this memo from the Secretary of Defense's office that says we're going to attack and destroy the governments in in seven countries in five years. We're going to start with Iraq, and then we're going to move to Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. I said, seven seven countries in five years. I said, is that a classified memo? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, don't show it to me. He was about to show it to me. He said, because I want to talk about it. And I I, I sat on this information for a long time, for about... Six or eight months, I I was so stunned by this, I couldn't begin to talk about it. And I couldn't believe it would really be true, but that's actually what happened. Uh, These people took control of the policy in the United States. And I realized then, it came back to me, a 1991 meeting I had with Paul Wolfowitz. You know, in 2001, he was Deputy Secretary of Defense, but in 1991, he was the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. It's the number three position in the Pentagon. And I had gone to see him when I was a one-star general. I was commanding the National Training Center. I had met him one time. He said, if you ever get to Washington, come look me up. They always say that. Well, I was there in Washington. It was a Friday afternoon. I'd visited Colin Powell. He'd given me five minutes of his precious time and sent me on my way. And I was bored in the Pentagon. And, 
And I thought, I'll just go, who can I see? I'll, I think I'll see Wolfowitz. So I called, and up there, he was available. Scooter Libby came to the door. I met Scooter for the first time, and he brought me in. And uh, I said to Paul, I said, and this is 1991, I said, Mr. Secretary, you must be pretty happy with the performance of the troops in, in Desert Storm. And he said, uh, well, yeah, he said, but, but not really, he said, because the truth is we should have gotten rid of Saddam Hussein, and we didn't. And this was just after the Shia uprising in, the, in March of 91, which we had provoked, and then we kept our troops on the sidelines and didn't intervene. And he said, but one thing we did learn, he said, we learned that we can use our military in the region, in the Middle East, and the Soviets won't stop us. He said, and we've got about five or ten years to clean up those old Soviet client regimes, Syria, Iran, Iraq, before the next great superpower comes on to challenges. And it was like, you know, I'm coming out of the Mojave Desert. I've been training troops. I haven't been thinking geostrategy for some time. And suddenly a guy just sort of shoves this nugget at you. Well, you remember it. It was a pretty stunning thing. You mean the purpose of the military is to, to, to start wars and change governments? It's not to sort of deter conflict? We're going to invade countries, and, I, I, you know, my mind was spinning. And uh, I put that aside. It was like a nugget that you hold on to. This country was taken over by a group of people with a policy coup. Wolfowitz and Cheney and Rumsfeld and you could name a half dozen other collaborators from the Project for a New American Century. They wanted us to destabilize the Middle East, turn it upside down, make it under our control. It went back to those comments in 1991. Now, did anybody ever tell you that? Was there a national dialogue on this? Did senators and congressmen stand up and denounce this plan? Was there a full-fledged American debate on it? Absolutely not. So... God damn! Again, Supreme Allied Commander, Europe of NATO, uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom winner, etc., etc. That's his story. Shit. So, <clears throat> we know the US has had plans to kick out the Assads for many years. Now, we can ask, what, what right does the US have to get involved in regime change? As you pointed out last episode... The the very suggestion that Russia under Putin may have done something to influence the U.S. election has, <laughs> you know, yeah. created the biggest fucking shitstorm in the U.S. Still, by the way, no proof whatsoever. They've been talking about this for six months. Not a shred of fucking evidence has come out that I've seen that Putin or the Russians mm -hmm. had anything to do with it. But they're still going on about it every day. Um, <clears throat> by the way, it's interesting when... Uh, Clark was talking about meeting with Wolfowitz in 91 and claims Wolfowitz said, we have 10 years to clean up all of the Soviet client states in the Middle East. 10 years is pretty mm -hmm. much spot on the money is when Putin came to power and uh, yeah. Putin's been pushing back ever since. Um, anyway, um, you know, as I said, I think earlier, the, Syria is a country that never attacked the U.S., never invaded the U.S., never attacked a U.S. embassy. 
when the mm-hmm. when when Russia gets involved in regime change, like in the Ukraine, the US calls foul. All this criticism right. of of Russia and Putin for being involved in regime change, but when the US does it, no one is supposed to bat an eyelid. It's supposed to be completely justified and acceptable for a whole bunch of reasons that they will trot out. Well, he was a bad guy, basically. Um, you made him a bad guy. Well, yes, but that's beside the point. That's that's bygones be bygones. Don't look at the hit past. Uh, he was a bad guy. We had to take him out. Well, in nineteen in the 1990s, obviously the USSR was on its way to collapsing internally it was near the end of the first phase of the cold war so yeah so i think the Amer- certain american politicians or or uh, ministers or whatever the proper term is probably you know was thinking there's no one to stop us now because there's something going on in the ussr that maybe we're winning or they're they're disintegrating but there's no one to stop us for the next 10 years where's our christmas list let's find out what we can do and get it done while we can and then like you said putin comes along fights back and we're we're to the second phase or the the morphed phase of the of the cold war now tonight i'm gonna have myself a real good time i feel alive Classic. <laughs> oh my god, you know what I picture while that song was playing? Fresh Fresh Prince of Bel Air, the main character's cousin doing his eighties dance. Yeah. It's, it's, oh my god. Oh my god. Just, I can't remember his name, but it's just classic eighties yeah. dance music. Yeah, begin with H. No? I don't remember. Um Yeah. So you're right. The, yeah, the, the Soviets were uh, weak. They couldn't stop it. So America went in, but didn't finish the job, as Wolfowitz said. Wolfowitz is going to come up later in this uh, again, too. Got more stories about Wolfowitz. So let's take stock of what we know. We know that Syria has had internal conflict for a long time, going back at least to the end of the French mandate after World War uh, One. We know that it was mm-hmm. one of the most coup-inflicted countries in the Middle East until Hafez al-Assad took over in 1970. There were internal conflicts in the country during the first dozen years of Hafez's government, culminating in the Hamar massacre in 1982 against the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, And these conflicts seem to stem partly from issues with his dictatorship, 
partly from the fact that he was an Alawite. It's partly a sectarian battle with Sunni hardliners having an issue with a secular Ba'ath government. But Hafez managed to keep Syria under control until he died in 2000. Then his son Bashar comes to power, is expected to bring in major reforms, but doesn't. Um, there is sort of a bit of a reform with the Damascus Spring, which he supports for a while and then gets shut down uh, sort of less than a year before it started. Then 9-11 happens. The US invades Iraq in 2003. Syria doesn't support it. The US claims they're a member of the Axis of Evil, but send people there to get tortured just because uh, that's they're useful for that. Um, we also know that the US had been talking in their back channels, diplomatic back channels, about overthrowing the Assad regime for decades. Uh, we have diplomatic cables saying that. We have General Wesley Clark saying that he was told by somebody in the Pentagon in 2001, just after 9-11 attacks, that they were going to take out Syria along with seven other countries. Yeah. Now, and, and I, this to me is always kind of fascinating because you can make all the plans you want, but uh, sometimes Mother Nature takes over and bitch slaps everything that you've been working for. So you've already got this, you've already got this tense situation. And I think we mentioned this on a couple of other, ep- uh, maybe two or three episodes ago, where we talked about this, this intense drought that Syria had for like three years from 2007 to 2010. So you've got this drought. This place does not have a lot of oil. It can't just sell a bunch of oil, make a lot of money, <clears throat> buy a lot of crops and bring it in, taking care of the people. You've got this serious drought. You've got this massive migration from from the country into the cities, exacerbating all the problems with living quarters, quality of life, the food itself. So again, that you've got this relatively young and experienced leader in the country, and he's suddenly got all these major issues to deal with at one time. And there's only so many people he can talk to. There's only so many people that he will trust to give him advice. Yeah, this drought, I mean, I think they were getting less than eight centimeters of rain a year uh, in the country. So there was widespread crop failure. Food prices went up. This mass migration Mm. that you talked about, as much as 85% of Syria's livestock died from thirst. Crop failures were like 75% in some areas. And as we know from the uh, Roebuck cable, the US were disencouraging discouraging, there's a word, discouraging, disencouraging, what the fuck, it's our three, we're discouraging uh, other states in the Gulf from economically supporting Syria. So turning up the heat on them here. Yeah, because, I mean, isn't this where the Red Cross or some other world global agency, relief agency, should be coming in and helping these poor people? I mean, this is disaster of the first magnitude. Yeah, or typically... You know, the World Bank or the IMF will come in and offer uh, offer funding to get to get them out of it. But in order to get the money, you've got to sign up to their programs, uh, uh, which he had already been doing a little bit of very early on. But at this stage, I think they were on the outs because um, yeah. one of the things they're going to want in exchange for bailout money is uh, opening up of the political and commercial side of the country. And his top 300 mm-hmm. elite families don't want any of that. So, um, right. 
Yeah, so the massive poverty, massive social unrest in the late, late 2000s, 2007 to 2010. And as you would often find, some of the hardest hit regions where there was the highest unemployment, about 30% of the population was unemployed. 30% of 22 million yeah. people was unemployed, which is like insane. We're talking depression era level unemployment in the Great Depression right. in the United States. Um, th- these areas become hot beds of of rebellion later on. So obviously people that they don't have enough food, they don't have a job, times are tough, uh, they get unhappy. This is typically where you get social unrest breaks out. If people have got full bellies and a job and meaning in their lives, they tend to just go along, which is why we have a middle class and this is why the elite allow for a middle class in the first place. You've got to have a middle class there to, you know, if everyone's broke, right. you know, you just have fucking French revolutions on your hands, right? Um, so that's what was happening up until 2010. And then we have the Arab Spring. I just wanted to mention something real quick. I, I was listening to another podcast, and they were saying that when the, when the Arab Spring comes to Syria, because it was... And I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting my countries right because it was relatively nonviolent at first in Egypt and Tunisia that the people of Syria were hoping it would be the same here. We will rise up and our numbers will just overwhelm Bashir, uh, Bashar and he won't be able to deal with it. And then maybe we can have some type of transition. So, so when it does come to them, the, the people are hoping there's a repeat performance, but also at the same time that it won't be bloody, that it won't turn violent and they can begin the process of reclaiming their country. Yeah, but th- overthrowing dictators uh, non-violently is a big... Uh, it's a little... <laughs> it's a bit, a bit yeah, of fantasy. It's a big deal. Yeah. And I think Mubarak was like really sick on his deathbed or something like that. So little different there. Well, also, yeah, the army sort of got behind it um, and just basically replaced Mubarak right. with That's another what, dictator. Yeah. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about the Arab Spring. Um a little bit of background for those who weren't paying attention at the time. Arab Spring began in 2010, 17th of December 2010 in Tunisia with the Tunisian Revolution. Tunisia, by the way, another country that was occupied by France for decades. Um, Tunisia achieved independence from France in 1956 and until 2011 was run by one of the most modern but repressive governments in the Arab world. Now, the catalyst for the Tunisian Revolution was the death of a 26-year-old street vendor, Mohamed Bouazizi, who set himself on fire on the 17th of December 2010 in protest at having all of his products confiscated, and he was humiliated by a municipal official. They, you know, he had a little card. He was pushing around. He was selling stuff. Um, he got sort of oppressed by this uh, city official, and in protest, he set himself on fire. Um, now, this led to mass demonstrations in Tunisia, which led to the dictator. Ben Ali, who had run the country for 23 years, getting the fuck mm-hmm. out of Dodge. 
and uh, he went. Pussy. He went into hiding in Saudi Arabia. Of course. Um, where they love a good, brutal dictator. Um, and the Tunisians have been trying to extradite him from Saudi Arabia to put him on trial. And the Saudis uh, keep saying no. He's been Never tried in absentia, by the way, in Tunisia, found guilty, sentenced to 35 years in prison for plundering the country's economy, but the Saudis won't send him back. Mm. So when you hear the Saudis say they're supporting the regime change in Syria because they don't like brutal dictators while they're beheading people and uh, dropping bonds on the Yemenis... They're also yeah. hiding away Ben Ali. Now, the Tunisian Revolution sort of inspired people in Arab countries to have their own protests, demonstrations, coups, civil wars, riots across the Middle East and North Africa. Some are violent, some are non-violent. Um, and it spread to Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, and to Syria. Yeah, so you gotta be you gotta be hopeful if you're if you're one of those countries. I mean, hope is all you got. Shit, you might as well hope for the best and try to make something happen. But again, you don't want to go too far, upset the people to suddenly where there's guns, tanks, bullets, snipers, whatever else you know the government has at its means to to push back down on the people. Yeah. Now, as I said before, you've you've got to. You've got to think that when the military controls a country, either directly or indirectly, if you have a dictator that that has the support of the military or the military are the dictatorship, Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to let go of the reins of power just because a bunch of people complain in the streets. Chanting in the streets with signs. That has very rarely ever happened in human history. Uh, the the people need support either from the military, which sometimes happens, where the military are sort of unhappy with the way things are and they want a change of mm. guard. You know, that happened in Russia during the Russian Revolution when the Tsars sent the army in to rough up the people that had gone on strike. The military went, no. Nah. The police went, no. Nah. Right? Um, but of course, they ended up aligning themselves with the Bolsheviks and it all turned out just fine and dandy for the people. Uh, and there's happiness and rainbows and unicorns ever since. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so it, it very rarely happens. When it does happen, as, as we saw in even in Tunisia and in Egypt, uh, quite often... If you see that change of head of state, it's because the military is supporting just a new dictator rather than the old dictator, right. you know. Um, now, according to the New York Times, various U.S. government-funded entities like Freedom House were promoting democracy in these same states, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, Syria. And by promoting democracy, I mean promoting revolution. This gets back to this idea of uh, NGOs in these countries. Um, You know, what other form of promoting democracy is there 
in a state that's a dictatorship, if not promoting revolution. It's not like you can just wave flowers in the streets and you're going to get democracy. There has to be some form of a revolution under a repressive regime. Somebody has to fall, yeah. Now, the other side of the story is the US were at the same time funding and training many of these same regimes that people were complaining about. Uh, Mubarak, Osni Mubarak in Egypt, for example, was getting one and a half billion dollars a year in military and economic aid from the United States. God damn, 1.5 billion with a B? Mm-hmm. Shit. Um, so on one hand, the US is going, oh, good, revolutions and democracy. On the other hand, they've been giving these guys money and weapons for years to keep them in power. Uh, But they're our our dictators. That's right. According to another US State Department cable released by Wikipedia, this one dates from 2009. It's called Behavior Reform, Next Steps for a Human Rights Strategy. Between 2005 and 2010, the US State Department funneled $12 million to opposition groups in Syria. They also secretly funded Barada TV, a London-based Syrian opposition satellite television network. Now, I I did a little bit of reading on this. Um, This was pretty, I mean, $12 million, let's be honest, that's not a lot when you're trying to run a TV uh, studio, whatever, um, especially over a couple of years. But it was supposedly really low budget. And, and looking back, people were saying that the um, revolution in Egypt was the Facebook revolution because a lot of people were going on there, writing, communicating with each other, protesting or whatever. And what the um, Barada TV um, company, whatever you want to call it, uh, found out was that they literally had such such limited resources. They couldn't do live television and, and send it all in because sometimes their guests wouldn't show up. They didn't have enough lights. They didn't have enough uh, technicians or whatever. So they would have to record it, post it to YouTube, then send it into Syria. So whereas the e- Egyptian um, revolution was known as the Facebook revolution, the Syrian revolution, Arab Spring, whatever you want to call it, was called the YouTube rev- resolution revolution because that's how everybody had to go on in there and get that that uh barada tv's uh point of view or their shows or whatever they had to watch it on youtube because their budget was so minuscule yeah now keep in mind that okay so people are going to youtube they're seeing Mm. stuff happening in syria about the revolution but Mm -hmm. at least in some cases that news footage is being funded by the U.S. State Department, who again, according to classified U.S. diplomatic cables released by WikiLeaks, show that the U.S. State Department funneled $6 million into Barada TV between 2006 and 2011, and probably a lot mm. more since then. We That's the only dates that we have. So right. people see a new, news footage supposedly coming out of Syria on YouTube what they don't realize is this is actually being funded, at least in some cases, by the U.S. State Department, the news footage. Now, does that mean it's not legitimate? No. But when you combine the fact that the U.S. has been spending millions of dollars on opposition groups, 
that the US head of embassy was talking about ways to increase tensions to overthrow the regime. Then the US is funding a television station that's making stories and posting them on face on Facebook and YouTube. You've got to be a little bit suspicious about the veracity of the stuff that we see coming out of Syria. Right. You fucking don't trust anybody. Don't, I mean, verify for yourself because you can't trust. Everybody's spinning everything all the time. There should be a t-shirt with that on there. Yeah. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of Robert F. Kennedy the elder, I guess, the guy who was supposedly shot by Sirhan Sirhan. Um, He's written a lot of stuff um, about goings-on in this part of the world too, surprisingly. Um, He quoted in one article that I read, uh, a 2008 Pentagon-funded report came out of the RAND Corporation, which recommended using covert action information operations and unconventional warfare to enforce a divide and rule strategy in Syria. Now, I actually couldn't find that report to back it up, but what I did find is something else that he quoted. It was a uh, 2012 study by the U.S. Defense Defense Intelligence Agency, seven-page study, that uh, was obtained by the right-wing group Judicial Watch. I found it on their website. It stated that Mm. the Salafist Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, and now ISIS forces are driving the insurgency in Syria. Mm. Um, And the US and the other Gulf states were funding these groups. They had turned peaceful protests against Bashar al-Assad towards a clear sectarian Shiite versus Sunni direction. Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning of the civil war, there has been investment from the United States and some of their allies in the Gulf region to directly towards violent terrorist groups to drive the, the Syrian insurgency. Kennedy also wrote, In 1957, my grandfather, Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy, sat on a secret committee charged with investigating the CIA's clandestine mischief in the Mideast. The so-called Bruce Lovett Report, to which he was a signatory, described CIA coup plots in Jordan, Syria, Iran, Iraq and Egypt, all common knowledge on the Arab street, but virtually unknown to the American people who believed at face value their government's denials. The report report blamed the CIA for the rampant anti-Americanism that was then mysteriously taking root in the many countries in the world today. He also goes on to say in this article, look, my father was killed by a terrorist. Um, So I'm no, you know, terrorist lover. Yeah. However... Here are the facts. And we saying I'm a patriot and denying the facts means you're not a patriot. You're just a moron. And he didn't actually say that bit. That's my bit. <laughs> so so let's just back up here for a second. So the CIA and whoever else of the American government go around and fuck with other countries. 
And then those countries hate us. And the American people don't know any better. Well, why the fuck do you hate me? Well, fuck you too. And then we need the U.S. military to protect us from the people that hate us, that want to hurt us, because another part of our government has gone and fucked with them in the first place. And then, yeah, and then those people, the ones that have been fucked with, um, get fed up with being fucked with, and they strap bombs to their chest and bombs. go and blow shit up um, right. as a form of protest, I guess. Well, you know, how does it feel like to live in fear, basically? How does it feel like to live in terror? Because that's what we right. live with, so um, try it on for yourself. You know, I'm not, exactly. I'm not. I haven't even posted on Facebook about the Manchester thing because I'm just. I, mean, I have no words left to say, but I'll say them on here because you people who listen to this know where I'm coming from. Facebook had just started into a fucking argument that had gone forever, and I right. can't be bothered. But we we need to understand some of the reasons why um, these terrorists do this kind of stuff, whether it's nine eleven or it's Manchester or you know. Pick, pick it. Pick whichever one you want. Stephanie France. Yeah, right. exactly. <clears throat> uh, and, uh, you know, I read some of the mainstream media coverage and they never talk about it honestly. And, and I see people ranting on Facebook about these scumbags, these cowards, these blah, 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 blah. Right, monsters. You know, and, and in some cases, like in the case of the person who supposedly was responsible for the Manchester bombing, whether or not there's any truth to what they're saying about who it was and why he did it, I don't know. But they're claiming he was a, a British citizen. Um, and, uh, you know, he may not have directly been affected by Western involvement in the Middle East, but he may have had friends or family or relations of some sort, or it's just that there may be mm-hmm. people he feels an affinity to and he sees it going on. Or... It's quite possible that, you know, he feels that he has a responsibility because these are Muslims that are being uh, terrorized by the West in these countries. Um, and he feels the need to strike back somehow. That's his duty is right. to, to do something, to do something to fight back. I mean, uh, we have to try and get into the mindsets of these people to understand what is driving them to this. But the mainstream media coverage and the shit that comes out of the government mouthpieces is all completely fucking inane and stupid. It, 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 they, no one ever really addresses the root causes of what's going on here. Well, fuck, we've been Absolutely. funding terrorism in their countries or other Islamic countries for decades. Um the French mandate and what happened out of that. The, the French are wondering why they're the subject of a lot of Islamic terrorism. Well, let's go and have a look at fucking the French and their involvement in these countries over the last hundred years and, and, and the ripple on effects that that's had. Right. Algeria as well, you know, the French involvement in Algeria, which went on a lot later, as we've, I think, talked about. Anyway. We've, yep. got, we've got 10 minutes left, and I want to get into the start of the Syrian Civil War. Okay. Finally. <laughs> the second, the last 10 minutes of episode 1. Well, I can't even remember. 12. 1.12, yeah. 12. There we go. Here's how it started. Here's what you've been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Okay. On March 6, 2011... Uh, 
small but peaceful protests broke out in the city of Daraa in Syria after 15 mm-hmm. teenage boys were arrested for the crime of painting revolutionary slogans on a school wall. Shit. The boys were aged between 10 and 15. They have spray painted on a wall. The people want to topple the regime. It was something that they had seen on television news reports coming out of Cairo and Tunisia. Mm. So they were copying this Arab Spring call for rebellion. They were arrested. They were taken to one of the cells of the local political security branch which was under the control of General Atef Najib, who was a cousin of Bashar al-Assad. There, the children were given cookies and milk and uh, Star Wars videos to watch. Yeah. Right. Oh, no, that was not what happened. They were beaten, uh, burned, and had their fingernails pulled out. And these just weren't your average kids, they were the children of some of the more important families of the city. So this is not going to go unnoticed. These aren't like homeless kids or whatever, just causing trouble. They have connections. Yeah, they were the children of some of the major families of Dara who went searching for their children for several days, failed to find them because this is a bit like ghost detainees. They were just pulled off the streets. No one was told where they were. Um, you know, they went, the, the families went to the official channels, the police, etc. said our children are missing. They said, no, nope, don't know anything about it. Um, and then after a few days where they hadn't been able to find these children, the parents and families of the children, along with local religious leaders, marched on the house of the governor of Dara after Friday mm-hmm. prayers to demand that he do something to help them locate the children. Now, the governor's security guards beat them back uh, away from the governor's mansion. Uh, Eventually, riot police were called in and they used water cannons and tear gas on these protesters, these families, trying to find out what happened to their kids. Eventually, armed members of political security turned up and opened fire on the protesters. Uh, some were injured, and when the people saw blood and they were being shot at with live ammunition, as you can expect, they went fucking crazy. Um, The gathering, which had started out with about 200 people who marched on the governor's mansion, swelled Mm -hmm. as hundreds of more turned up. News spread around Dara that political security had opened fire on peaceful protests, Um, There were unconfirmed reports that General Najib himself had taunted family members, telling them to forget about their children and go home and sleep with their wives to make some more children. That's, you've got to hope and pray that that's not real because that's just, that's that's as sick as it gets. That's pretty fucking cold, right? Yes. yes. You're never going to see those children. Go make some more. Just forget about them. So um, after another day of protests with hundreds and hundreds of people outside the governor's mansion, um, the boys were released, beaten, bloodied, burned, fingernails pulled out. Oh, God. 
Um, there were more protests and uh, security forces again opened fire and killed three protesters. Two days later, crowds set fire to the offices of the Ba'ath Party in Durrah and started demanding an end to emergency law and freedom and all of the stuff that they had been wanting since, you know, the Damascus uh, spring back in 2000, 2001. So where's Assad during all this? Well, Assad responds relatively uh, ineptly initially. He sent a delegation of high-ranking officials to Durrah to try and calm things down. Didn't personally go there himself. Now, the officials that he sent um, had ties to Durrah, family ties to the tribal leaders there. The delegation included Faisal Mehdad, who was the deputy foreign minister, and his former boss, Farouk al-Sharrah, who is now the vice president, um, mm-hmm. and who was also from the Durrah region. But the most important person of the delegation to go was General Rustom Ghazali, one of the highest ranking members of Syria's military intelligence. Now, he was also from the area, was a senior member of Assad's inner circle, and one of the highest ranking members um, of the military. And he was there to really give assurance to Daraz leaders that the situation would be calmed down. Um and the 15 children were finally released at this stage. Uh, they'd been in jail for about two weeks and tortured, obviously. Um, how in... Okay. Yeah. No, just how in the fuck... You, you, you get a bunch of generals, you come and whatever. Don't worry, we're going to take care of it. Can you unburn my children? Can you stick their fingernails back in their hands. I mean, they're going to have nightmares for a very long time for what you've done to them or what someone else has done to them. How are you going to fix this? Yeah, well, you know, a bit of Phil Collins. Um, oh, don't. <laughs> bit of ELO. They played that, you know. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Please continue. <laughs> That's it. That's all it takes. <laughs> God. You can't listen to that and be unhappy, even if your kids have been arrested and tortured. They played that over the speakers. You go, oh, you're right. Everybody's hugging. <laughs> no, I'm just trying. To, I'm just trying to picture this general going. We're don't worry. We're going to calm the situation down. And the people going, you fucking asshole. We're the ones that need to be calmed down, and we don't want to calm down. I'm just 
just trying to imagine how they really expected this to take a turn for the better. By now, the demonstrators were in their thousands in Durar. And uh, in the early hours of the morning of March 23rd, only 48 hours after Ghazali had met with the leaders of Durar, Syrian security forces stormed the Omari Mosque, which had become sort of a meeting place of the protest movement. They threw in stun grenades before opening fire, killing five people, including a doctor who was in there treating the people injured in the previous protests. Was that their idea of calming the situation down? Yeah, that's how you calm it down. Okay. Um, he, He was calm. The general, the soldiers were calm when they went in there. Very yeah. calm. Uh, so this is like, so the, the kids were arrested on March 6th. Uh, this is March 23rd. So only a few weeks later, man, and, and shit is just going to hell in a handbasket. The following day, General Khaltoum, uh, sorry, Governor Khaltoum, the governor of the area, his residence was burned down. Oh, God. Uh, and then he was sacked. Um, General Najib was also sacked. Remember, he was uh, the cousin of Bashar al-Assad. So, you know, they're, try- they're, they're, they're trying to do stuff here to calm people down. Okay, look, yes, we did go into the mosque and shoot people, but we've sacked the governor and the general. So, you know, bit of this, bit of that, bit of the other. Oh, good. It's all good. Um. Okay. A fortnight later, Assad referred the two men to court to investigate their role in igniting the protests in the city and how they handled it. So he's doing something to make it look like he cares, but he didn't go to the city himself yeah. to calm things down because he was busy, like ELO, Phil Collins... You know, he, he had things do, going on, man. There was an ELO concert I think right. he had to be at. Um, yeah, so he didn't go himself, and the protests continued, just kept going, escalating. Syrian security forces would fire on them, people would be killed, the protests would grow even larger. Damn. On March 24th, uh, the government issued a decree saying they were going to cut taxes and raise state salaries by 1,500 Syrian pounds a month, Mm. which sounds a lot until you realise it's only $32. But uh, still, they're coming out of this this drought, massive poverty, 30% unemployment, extra 30 bucks a month in that situation probably goes a long way. But there are tens of thousands of people protesting now in Durrah. They turned out for funerals of the people that had been killed the next day, and they, they chanted, right. we do not want your bread, we want our dignity. Damn fucking right. And the security services that were there heard that and took it to heart and opened fire and killed 15 more people oh, during the... F- they killed people at a funeral. Yeah. I'm getting pissed off now. A group of protesters tore down a statue of Hafez el-Assad. Pictures of Bashar were ripped and burned. In one week of protests around Durrah, 55 people were killed by security forces. Someone, Someone needs to get a hold of these security forces and tell them, quit shooting into the people. Shoot over their heads or don't shoot or whatever, but... 
it's like cutting off with the head of the Hydra or whatever it's called. There's just more that grow back. More people are going to show up the more you keep killing. Now, in his first public statement about all of this, Bashar claimed the the mm. uprising was the result of a foreign plot. Fuck you. Well, Sorry. well, okay. So we've just talked about foreign plots. <laughs> they were a real thing. And he, I'm sure his own security services, intelligence services, knew that foreign plots were a real thing. In this case, probably a bit early and not a good way to calm down the people of Darar by saying, yeah, look, yeah. we did, yes, we did arrest, torture uh, your children. We have killed 55 of you. But when I say foreign plot, <laughs> I don't know. It's just a, it's just my instinctive reaction to say foreign plot. Right. I don't know. Yeah, the people of Darar didn't take very well to that. Um, so the protests just got bigger and louder and uh, there was more violence. It just, just fucking escalated quickly. Uh, they wanted right. reforms. They wanted Bashar gone. They wanted political freedoms, equal rights for the Kurds, freedom of the press, oh, all that stuff that they've always wanted. The Syrian government sort of went into a bit of a tailspin here and Bashar did start pushing through some reforms. On the 21st of April... He formally declared the repeal of the emergency law that had been in place since 1963. Right. Okay, that's kind of a big deal. I'll give him that. That's kind of a big deal. Quit shooting people, but that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Well, he said, stop protesting and we'll stop shooting you. They said, stop shooting us and we'll stop protesting. Um, Chicken in the egg. And... In the same month in April, the Syrian government uh, started sending tanks into various cities to shut down demonstrations. Tanks and snipers were used to force people off the streets. And this it's at this point that it takes on a whole different uh, timber um, right. flavour. Um, uh, uh, it, it starts to become a real civil war. It's gone beyond protests now. It's become a civil mm -hmm. war because the people fight back. Um, and some of the forces inside of Syria that had, you know, wanted, had tried overthrows, military overthrows, rebellions in the past, uh, come to life again. Plus, right. you know, this is 2011, at this stage, there's a lot of armed revolutionary groups around Syria, uh, some of which are, uh, 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 you know, the ISIS's of the world, some of which are Hezbollah, um, mm -hmm. sort of revolutionary groups, let us call them. Uh, maybe you could call them terrorism groups, revolutionary groups, whatever you want to call them. Plus, you've got the states that are supporting those including the United States, possibly Israel, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. Turkey, right. uh, Qatar, um, and then Russia gets involved. And this is when it starts to take on uh, a different nature. Foreign foreign um, plots do start to really play a force. Remember, 
William Roebuck, the American diplomat, saying we need to increase tensions and then be ready to take advantage of them when they strike. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what happens. And it's not just the United States, though, that's taking advantage of them. It's every man and his fucking dog on all sides jump in. But that will be our next episode. So after 12 episodes, boys and girls... Yeah. We are finally into the Syrian civil war well and truly. Thank you for your patience sticking with us to this point. Um, but I hope you will agree and understand now that the, you, you understand with all of this history that the civil war didn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. It has been building and building, and a lot of people have been contributing to it inside and outside of Syria for a century. Right. Um, and here it finally is, and it's already been the most brutal war of the 21st century, but it's been coming for at least a century. Yeah. That's it, buddy. No re- no more reviews yeah. this week. Um, people okay. listening uh, in Australia... Lifeofseason.com slash Ray Day. Get in on that shit. Mm-hmm. Get a ticket if you're in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. Um, I would love to see you. Yes. Yes. Get a bit of a tickle from Ray, a bit of a reach around. Uh, get down on your knees so you can look him face to face. Look at him in the eyes and tell him what you really think of him. <laughs> oh, don't don't make me because I will. You probably heard this on the news. A Republican candidate out West body slammed a reporter. I did see that. So, yeah. Yeah, so don't fuck with me. But anyway, because I got, I have a, a wife. She's pretty tough when she's drunk. Anyway, you'll probably get to meet her too. At the very least, meet her.